My name is Andrew Williams. I'm the president of New Pacific Metals, a company that is discovering and developing world-class silver and gold deposits in Bolivia. Andrew, thank you very much for the introduction. Nice to meet you. It's the first time we've uh, spoken. Uh, when did you join the company and uh, how come we haven't spoken before? Well, I've just joined uh, uh, roughly three months ago uh, in January of this year. And um, previous to joining New Pacific Metals, I spent 11 years on the buy side with a well-known institutional investment firm as a portfolio manager. So this is certainly my first role um, in the public company space, which might explain why I'm uh, new on your radar screen. Uh, did you cover uh, New Pacific Metals from, from your position um, as an analyst? Yeah, absolutely. Any uh, major industry discovery certainly uh, warrants the attention of any uh, resource specialist investor. And when New Pacific made the announcement of the silver sand discovery, it certainly generated a, a ton of buzz in the industry. And that was early 2019 when those first drill holes uh, really started to come out. And then what really kicked the company into new gear was in uh, in late 2021, the company started publishing drill results from its Karangas discovery, which uh, is the second uh, major uh, mineral system that the company has unearthed, the old-fashioned organic way, grassroots exploration. And um, you know, having you know, two organic discoveries in an industry where discoveries just aren't being made with anywhere near the frequency they used to be, it, it uh, certainly came right up the flagpole in terms of uh, attention and interest as an institutional investor. I was amused to see those um, results coming out with the Karangas discovery because I've I've known the country manager for uh, New Pacific for 25, 26, 27 years, and way back in the um, in the in the late 90s, he was telling me about the potential of the of the, the Karangas thing. So for me, it was a great degree of personal satisfaction to see the company uh, coming up with those results. Um, but um, that's just my personal um, kind of connection with it. But uh, what made you leave um, what was probably a very kind of safe seat in um, uh, a corporate office in Canada to go exploring in the wilds of um, the, the South America? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, certainly a, a bit of a, a, a gear shift in terms of my career trajectory. Um, you know, being a portfolio manager is a wonderful job. It's intellectually very stimulating. Um, but, uh, you do spend a lot of time in front of, um, your, your computer screen, looking at models and, and Bloomberg statistics. And, um, I certainly had a bit of an itch to, to get out there and, and embark on a new adventure, you know, both, um, you know, in the, in the public company, uh, investor facing role, but you know, really rolling up my sleeves and, and getting involved in, in a particular operation or in our case operations with, with silver sand and Karangas. And so, you know, that's sort of part one as the personal motivation side, but you know, as far as, you know, which company to, to jump into and, and, you know, what I came to appreciate was just, you know, how rare new discoveries are. And if you look at the really successful companies over the last, say, 10 years in this industry, they're either making discoveries themselves, which um, you know, is, is kind of the obvious, that's how you create value in this industry is you find new metals, but you know, often it's tough to predict and find those ahead of time. Often even the geologists on the ground aren't aware that they're about to make a discovery. But the, the second piece being um, you know, great companies also, they don't necessarily have to make a discovery themselves. They can um, develop a great discovery and turn it into a great mine. And that's you know, a, a recipe book that we've seen um, you know, quite successfully 
over the last several years, some some great companies you know have accomplished that feat. And I think the reason why more don't follow that path is just the discoveries aren't there to go around. And that's why New Pacific, having made two in just such a short uh, amount of time of the size and scale and the quality of Silver Sand and Karangas, you know, certainly um, that was the the really the pull from my perspective on on joining New Pacific. And so, d- d- does that mean that the strategy is um, all all um, a full push towards advancing Silver Sands to kind of a construction decision. I mean, is is that the focus of the company? Yeah, for the present time, uh, it certainly is on, on the Silver Sand aspect of it. Um, you know, what, I mean, any junior always has the option to you know pursue development in house or or find a buyer that can can do it that way. And then we're certainly you know open to all uh, possible strategic outcomes. But in either scenario that you pick, the way to maximize value is to to put our heads down and really do a lot of that strong, heavy lifting and, and lay a, a foundation for you know the de- development of what will be a multi-decade asset. So you know, we're certainly marching ahead uh, this year. We've, we've completed now an updated resource estimate last fall. We've published a PEA study in January of this year. And we've got our heads down and are, you know, laser focused on completing the permitting activities this year at Silver Sand, completing the pre-feasibility study, and we're very much um, taking the steps necessary to um, be able to finance and, and construct and ramp up uh, Silver Sand ourselves. Should we, you know, proceed down that strategic path? Your valuation is quite strong relative to your NPV. I mean, so you've got the the NPV. Eight on Silver Sands was seven hundred. Um, sorry, forgive me. What was it? Uh, it was it was north of seven hundred million dollars um, US, and your market capitalization in US is about four hundred thirty million dollars. So you're trading at kind of 60 percent of your NPV, which is a significant premium to peers in this in other companies in the sector. You know, maybe they're offering more value than at, at the PFS stage, or even yeah, sorry the between the PEA and PFS, um, is your valuation a bit rich for for the, how advanced your project is? Um, I certainly wouldn't say so. Uh, when you just just look at Silver Sand itself, so let's say okay, we're trading at you know roughly half NPV relative to the PEA study, but a you look at um, established silver producers, they often trade at multiples of NPV, and when you look at just the pure production profile from the silver sand project so in each of the first four years of that pea mine plan we're going to be producing roughly 16 million ounces of silver per year and to put that into context silver industry giant hecla their 2023 silver production guidance is you know between 16 to 17 and a half million ounces of silver so you know the, the production from this one project alone you know will, will produce uh, a similar scale as what you know, a three and a half, four billion dollar company like Hecla produces. Now, granted, they do have some byproduct uh, production from other mines, but you know the, the the sheer size and scale of this deposit. You know, high quality deposits command a premium in this industry. This is a pure silver deposit, and um, it's just strategically a, a very important asset. And I would argue that we should see it trading at you know, multiples of NPV, not only aligned with its silver production peers. You know, once we do bring it to that level, but um, you know, recognizing the the scarcity of a large pure silver deposit, you know, just on silver sand alone, I, I think that 
you know, there's there's plenty of runway to go here for a valuation standpoint. And, and this doesn't even you know, factor in this incredible discovery we've made at Kerangas in the past two years that we really feel like we're getting no credit for in our share price. So no, I, I wouldn't say by any stretch of the imagination, our, our, um, you know, our, our valuation is particularly rich. Um, what's, remind me of the CapEx figure from the, from the PEA, please. It's uh, $308 million is the initial upfront CapEx, which when you compare that to our market cap, as you mentioned, what, $400, $450 million US, you know, it's certainly a, uh, a financeable and buildable project for a company of our size and scale, which might also explain you know, part of the reason why you know, we're not trading at, say, 0.1 or 0.2 times NPV, which, you know, you could have a junior with a, a multi-billion dollar CapEx project and a $50 million market cap or something like that. No, this is very much a, a project that's imminently uh, financeable and buildable for a company of our size and scale. Um, which brings me to Bolivia, you know, because if you're, you know, $300 million into the US is one thing, but $300 million into Bolivia is a, is a, is a, is a different question. Um, could you talk to me about the Political risk, the perception of, um, or, the, or, the, or what else is happening in Bolivia at the kind of high level to give uh, investors and shareholders uh, in the Pacific the kind of comfort that there's there's money on the uh, parallel money coming into Bolivia. Yeah, um, great question. And is it, when you think about Bolivia, uh, you know the the tone of your question is very much it's a frontier country. But when you, you know, look back and rewind the clock, I mean this is. Uh, Bolivia is home to the largest silver deposit that's ever been made in the history of the world, the Cerro Rico uh, mine, which is 33 kilometers away from our silver sand project. And it's been operating for almost 500 years, you know, continuously. And, you know, that, that's really laid the foundation for, you know, a very rich uh, mining heritage in the country. And, and mining is roughly 30% of the national economy in Bolivia. It's the eighth largest silver producer globally. So, now, this is very much a mining country, and if you look at the status of uh, large-scale uh, foreign-owned uh, mining operations, there's really three uh, major operations that have been built in the in the sort of the mid 2000s. The, the biggest of which is the San Cristobal operation, uh, which is run by Sumitomo for you know 17 years, almost you know, continuously uninterrupted. It's been a, a fabulous mine for them, one of the world's largest. Uh, zinc producers, 50,000 ton a day operation. And you go down the list, Pan American Silver, their San Vicente operation has been going for you know, almost two decades here. Uh, very successful operation. They're actually our, our second largest shareholder. And certainly when you think about Bolivia, you know, someone like Pan American who's got experience in the country, I wouldn't see them doubling down in the country if they didn't feel like there was you know something there. Uh, and then um, you know, Core Mining built another wonderful operation, San Bartolome, in the mid-2000s. That was one of their you know, most profitable operations for many years there. It's since gone to Andean Precious Metals, who's running that. So there's, you know, there's very much a, um, a solid precedent for great mines having been you know, constructed and operated in Bolivia. Now, if you think about uh, you know, timelines, there hasn't been one uh, built here now in, in you know, 15 years or so. And and that really, you know, goes to the, the country uh, in 2005 elected Evo Morales, which was a, certainly a, a swing to the left. And, and that really you know, gave a lot of foreign investors pause, you know, uncertain with, you know, how he might come out and, and treat new foreign investment. But, you know, just like in any of these countries, the, the windows, they open and close. And, and you know, we feel like we're now, you know, a long time removed from the election of Evo Morales. We're now three presidents 
um, you know, past him, you know, him, him and a transitional government and Lucho Arce, who's now the current president of the country, uh, who is a, a former minister of finance. He's got a master's degree in economics from a institution in the UK. And so, you know, he very much understands the, uh, the need for foreign investment in Bolivia. But you know, now we're this, this new mass party, really that the dust is settled and, and the country's have gone through this reset, and I think the 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 roadmap and the the runway that we've got in front of us is quite clear. That the taxes and the royalty regime in the country are very clearly laid out in the in the mining code. Um, there's free convertibility of, of capital, no no um, foreign currency restrictions. You know, unlike countries like Argentina, and also if you just look at you know how Bolivia went through its political reset in 2005. Yeah, we've gotten that out of the way. And you look at other countries like, say, Peru, uh, you know, Mexico, Chile, you know, they're really struggling with, with some of these same issues as you know, what Bolivia struggled with and struggled through in the mid-2000s. So you know, we feel like we're really entering a, a nice window here um, for a new wave of, of foreign mining investment because those great mines that were built in the 2000s, you know, a lot of them are, are, you know, mines don't last forever. And you got to put money back in the ground to explore, to find new ones, to build new ones. And this is what the country recognizes. And so when um, Lucho Arce was uh, inaugurated in late 2020 for a five-year term, they released a, a policy document highlighting five new mines in five years. That's their goal. They get it. So you know, we're very much at the forefront of this movement, and we feel like we've got a really interesting window here to, to come in and, and make some hay and, and and established ourselves as uh, the, the preeminent partner in Bolivia for new mine development. And is is there a um, thank you? That's a comprehensive answer. Um, uh, has there been any change in the tax and the royalty regimes? I mean, has that um, did Evo Morales uh, introduce change, and has it been um, steady for a while? Yeah, it's been uh, really steady. I mean, you think about uh, the San Cristobal operation. It, they, they've operated through um, really, yeah, three, four different presidents uh, with the same regime. It's it's a very clear 25% corporate tax. There's a 12.5% mining tax. You get a 5% credit if you produce Dore. There's a 6% top line royalty, and you know that that's really the the bulk of of the um, the taxation regime, which some might look at and go, oh, geez, that's a little somewhat onerous for a country like Bolivia. And, and you know, it, it's a fair point. If you look at some other countries in the world, there are lower tax and royalty rates. But I look at it as a positive because if you look at companies and, and mining projects that have got themselves in trouble, it's often because they've got a sweetheart tax and royalty regime uh, that the government's granted them. And then uh, at one point, either it's a new president or somebody wakes up and, and and comes to terms with the sweetheart deal, and that's when they end up going back to the company and and shaking them out for you know for te for potentially more. So I think it's a it's a fair uh, it's a fair tax and royalty regime, and it's been stable for many years now. No, it's it would as long as you can um, define sufficiently a sufficient number of commercially viable deposits that work in that tax regime, and if you can get the returns while with with that tax load and that royalty uh, load, then then that's fine. Obviously. If the tax reg regime is so onerous that it doesn't uh, elicit uh, capital investment, then the, then you've got an inappropriate tax load for your uh, geological opportunity. So um, uh, it's, that sounds as if you know six percent royalty on the headline is is a lot, but if you've got the geological opportunity, then it might be able to bear it. And certainly, 
the IRR from your PEA of 39% is in the healthy category, above 30%. Yes, we like to think so as well. <laughs> um, you talk about the the um, <clears throat> the deliverables. You put out you put out recently put out an update for 2023. The kind of the plan for 2023. You talk about getting the pre feasibility study uh, completed, the uh, environmental impact uh, assessment uh, completed, and then the environmental impact statement submitted, and the mining production contract. Um, could you just kind of go through these those three things one by one? But let's first we'll start with the PFS. What are the kind of the building blocks of the technical work for that PFS? Yeah, I, I think um, going into the PFS from the PEA, I think point one is that our PEA unusually had over ninety percent of the mineral inventory sitting as measured indicated resources. You know, a lot of it drilled down to thirty meter centers, so yeah, that's a big check mark as far as. Uh, you know, often a junior might have a bulk of a PEA done and inferred and then have to, you know, spend, you know, the next year or two really upgrading that. We've done that heavy lifting. So big check mark for going from PEA to PFS. There's some additional geotechnical work, um, some waste rock characterization work, uh, and then really just uh, sharpening up the uh, estimates around, you know, mining costs. Like we're going to go out to specific mining contractor to get firm quotes on the, on the mining costs and um, some of the capital cost items. Like I think in our PEA study for the mill, we got quotes for the, the biggest components, but all the small components, like some of the electrical and instrumentation and, and uh, the nuts and bolts, we're gonna you know, really sharpen our pencils on those numbers. I, I think you know, from a scope perspective, not a lot of change is expected in that PFS, uh, but certainly we're gonna look at you know, just increasing the level of precision there. Um, and then you, one, yeah. in a PFS, you normally do test a number of different scopes. You normally do run a bunch of trade-off studies. So, I mean, what, what do you, um, what will you be looking at in terms of kind of optimization? Will you look at throughput rates or kind of cutoff grades? What's what, what are the kind of the the, the 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 most obvious variables that jump out to you? Yeah, good question. So. Uh, again, talking about how we did a lot of that drilling heavy lifting up front, we also did a lot of that trade-off work heavy lifting up front as well. If you go back the last couple of years, there was it was debated uh, hotly uh, internally here in the company, the processing method. How, because uh, do we go heap leach? Do we go uh, milling, conventional milling? And those are really the two options that we seriously consider. There's also to produce a flotation concentrate, which really made no sense given that this is a pure silver deposit with no meaningful byproducts. So you know, we're better off producing that finished product. And not only do we get the 5% reduction in the mining tax, uh, you don't have to incur the um, the transportation and logistics and we get full payability. So you know, that one's off the table. And then the heap leach versus the mill, uh, leading up to the PEA study, we really concluded that because the grades are so high, you know, 110 roughly grams per ton silver, which is a gram and a half head grade, like you wouldn't put gram and a half material on a heap leach pad that you know, that delta in extra recovery that you get with a mill, it's just, it really doesn't make any any sense to to go for the heat leach route. Uh, so you know, I think we're really, um, we, we've made the decision on on tank leaching and then throughput rate again, we we feel like the 4 million ton per annum is really the, the sweet spot for this operation. So yeah, I wouldn't expect any meaningful scope changes in either of those areas. Good, thank you. Um, uh, environmental um, impact uh, permitting, um, monitoring, uh, what's your take on that, please? 
Yeah, so uh, what we need to do is submit our EIS study, and then it, our, our in-country consultants have advised us that when we make that submission, it's a three- to six-month process to get approval. So we really got to work backwards and say, when are we going to make that submission? And that's something that our, our guys in-country, uh, they're advising us that, you know, that the fall of this year is a, a reasonable uh, target date. Uh, and we do caution that you know, we're dealing with you know, human beings on the ground here. The, the biggest uh, component in, in that is the community agreements. So you know, they could come sooner or they could take longer. But you know, the, our, our best guess here is, is in the fall of this year, we'll be in a position to have those you know, wrapped up and make our submission. But you know, then if we go into the uh, community agreements, the, the environmental side, the, the beauty of this project is it, it's, you know, there really are no controversial elements uh, from an environmental perspective. Um, it's, it, you look at the water, they, that's typically uh, the most sensitive issue of any uh, project that you know, runs into difficulties on the permitting front. And you know, the actual the, the net impact on water availability of this project is going to be positive, where they get a huge amount of rain that falls in a wet season. So you get three months where you get 700 millimeters of rain, and then you get nine months where it's bone dry. And so in that intense three-month wet season, all this rain falls and it flushes away into the valley, into the river, and ends up in an ocean. It just doesn't get used. And then the remaining nine months, there's no water. So we're going to build a, a 3 million cubic meter water reservoir and capture that excess rainwater so that we can use it continuously in our process plant throughout the year. But importantly, we're going to be able to release excess rainwater to the local communities during the dry season that they otherwise wouldn't have available. So you know, that's something that you know, from a, an environmental perspective, you know, this is a fairly straightforward project. I think where we really have to put in the extra legwork here is on the community agreements because there's, there's um, you know, five different communities that are going to be directly impacted by this project, of which two are the most significant. There's roughly 80 families or so. And, you know, this is a, a represents a material change to the to their to their lifestyle that they've they've lived and uh you know for for quite some time and even though they're not a large community they still want to know what's up and so you know, we're we're embarking on that um that socialization process we're actually just kicking off a door-to-door -door campaign with those communities because now that we've got this pea study we can actually talk to the direct impacts of the project so yeah, that's really you know something that we're excited to be yeah, you know kicking off in earnest here over the next few months is this door-to-door -door campaign with the goal to you know, sign these community agreements, which is really the key input for us for, for meeting that uh, fall uh, submission uh, target for, for the environmental impact study. And the, those 80 families that are impacted, is it a re relocation thing or is it trucks coming past the door? Um, what, what's, the, what's the form of that affectation? Yeah, um, all of the above. So um, our, our actual Silver Sand project, we own the subsurface uh, rights to mine, but there's some additional surface areas that we require access to, and that involves leasing uh, this land from the local community. So, you know, finalizing a, a lease agreement, and then secondly, there are uh, it's roughly I don't know 50 families or so of those 80 that will need to be relocated. So, you know, we can either relocate them to Potosi or to Sucre, two nearby towns, or offer cash in lieu of uh, relocation, but. You know, certainly, um, you know, those those are the two the two big ones um, that we need to uh, really dig into in order to you know complete this exercise. And um, there's always the opportunity for a cynical NGO to get in the way and to explain to them what the value is and uh, hold you to ransom 
and it still costs a huge amount of money, kind of in a worst case scenario. Is there any um, kind of legal recourse uh, on kind of the valuation of land access or property? Um, I mean, there always is. We certainly, it is not our intention to, to go down that path. I think if you go there, that means that the relationship, you know, has, has suffered. So you know, we're, we're very much in terms of, you know, insulating ourselves from, let's say, outsiders. The most important thing we can do is, is develop a really strong a relationship, you know, built on mutual trust and respect with these communities, and that's that's really what our our goal is. Is you know that just serves us well in in all facets to really um, bolster and and insulate this project from any sort of you know outside criticism. Is to you know continue to you know build strong relationships, which you know, we've been on the ground now for five years, and you know, talked about Hernan, our, our country manager. He's done an exceptional job, you know, building relationships with those local communities. So. You know, we're certainly going to you know continue to just press forward and, and do it the right way. Good. Well, I um, I it, knowing the importance of those community relationships and that kind of that social contract, um, across South America. I mean, anywhere in the world, really, but particularly in South America, um, it'll be, I think, a a, a key de-risking step to see that you've got those community agreements signed up. Um, and then then the third point was the the um. Mining production contract. Yeah, so um, you know that's so our Silver Sand project is a three square kilometer land holding, and surrounding that is a fifty-five square kilometer land package that's currently owned by Comabal. They're the state-owned mining company in Bolivia, and we've signed an agreement with Comabal to have a, a joint venture uh, where we can. Uh, we can explore and mine and process material from that Comabal land in exchange for an additional 6% royalty. And that agreement that's been signed, the, the next big step is having it, and the final step is having it be uh, ratified in a parliamentary session, which, which really involves us um, you know, ensuring that we've got the right relationships and, and making sure that you know, we're, we're keeping it top of mind, given that a lot of these folks in, uh, in politics They've got you know a million different things on their agenda, so we got to you know, push to make sure that ours you know gets to the top of the priority list. But that, that's certainly the 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 last and final key step in really unlocking the exploration potential of this belt uh, is having that MPC contract uh, be ratified in a parliamentary session, which you know, we're we're pushing towards you know hopefully uh, at some point later this year. But effectively, you've got the the commercial terms agreed with your. With Comibol, that's right. Yes, and the the reason the strategic rationale for this is that later in the life of the asset, there could be exploration uh, potential or resource potential that one could um, rationalize through the existing plant infrastructure. That's right. Yeah, and and you look at that production profile. So the fourteen year mine life, twelve million ounces per year average. The first four years are sixteen million ounces. A really nice high grade starter pit, but. You know, if we want to you know, backfill that and you know, keep that high level of production, you know, that's really, you know, we get into some of this exploration ground, we can hopefully you know, make some new discoveries in the district and, and really help you know, backfill that production profile. Um, good. Now, we, we've, we've been talking a while, but we haven't even, we barely mentioned um, Karangas other than the fact that it's been a, a discovery in the last couple of years. Um, what's your kind of uh, budget split between Karangas and um, Silver Sand this year? Bearing in mind that you've done most of the heavy lifting, as you mentioned a couple of times, on Silver Sand. 
Yeah, so I'd say the 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 budget's uh, a little more heavily weighted to Karangas, just given that we're drilling, or that's how any exploration company really racks up the bills. Uh, and our, our spend is going to be heavily weighted to the first quarter of this year, which is now passed. So we, we just wrapped up a 15,000 meter program in the first quarter with five drill rigs. And the objective there was we're not only uh, stepping out on this gold mineralization at depth to the northeast and there's silver mineralization close to surface to the southwest, but also completing our infill drilling, which then uh, we're going to be targeting our first ever resource estimate at Karangas in the middle of this year. Um, so getting that drilling done, you know, certainly the, the heaviest spend item in the first quarter, and then it's going to, we're going to, we're going to flip to resource estimation and then, you know, targeting a PEA study at Karangas by year end. Okay. Um, exploration companies, junior resource development companies are always short of cash. Uh, your financial statement says you got $14 million Canadian at the, as the, at the end of last year, uh, 14.4, um, so at some point in the future, you're going to have to raise more capital. Uh, it's a relatively tough market out there, but there are kind of rays of light. There are signs of optimism. Um, do you take a very flexible approach to that? Uh, are you waiting for some key deadline to come through? Um, or are you just going to see how it goes and just bear in mind that you're going to need to raise capital at some stage? Yeah, I mean, it really is no secret that we'll, we, we will need to raise some additional funds at some point, and I think our, our year in cash, uh, I think it was a little bit higher than that, but you know, the, the point still remains that um, you know, we ultimately, you know, between now and the end of the year, end of the year, we will be, we will still have some cash left on our balance sheet, but not a lot. So you never want to be in a position where you're uh, raising cash from, from a position of weakness. So um, it's really in the context of the market uh, at some point between now and the end of the year, we we'll need to complete that. And so you know, part of my job is just getting out there. And you know, I've been to you know a number of different conferences and and, and had a, a number of different institutional investor updates and and uh, desk presentations, et cetera, just to make sure that we've you know fully gotten this word out. Because again, like like all companies, but we certainly believe that we're not you know fully valued here. In particular, you look at this Karangas discovery where you know, we haven't um, you know, really gotten any credit in our share price for it. So you know, we want to do everything we can to help um, get recognition for that, you know, prior to, you know, doing a, a modest top up here, but yeah, certainly that's, um, that's the, the, the balancing act we've got to do. We want to get enough cash to be able to complete our work plans, you know, into next year, but also, you know, we're really mindful as many of us are large shareholders of, you know, excessive dilution. And your decision to pause silver strike, is that a function of kind of two key parameters? One is that exploration is not really being valued and to preserving capital. Yeah, exactly. And there's probably a, a third in there as well. The first being that we're spending the money and not getting the credit for it. So, you know, let's wait for an environment where we will. Uh, and then the second being, you're right, is is capital. We need to, uh, drilling is where you, we really uh, get the budget going. And so we've, we've pressed pause there. But third is just internal bandwidth. That's another important uh, factor here where in the beginning of this year, we made the uh, strategic assessment to say, hey, at each of Silver Sand and Karangas, like those are each one junior mining company. And we've got two uh, essentially in, in one company. And, and so as far as our resources go, we just felt like we wanted to make sure that we did a good job at, at both Silver Sand and Karangas and really didn't want to risk 
stretching ourselves thin by pushing ahead at Silver Strike, especially when we weren't getting the credit for it in the marketplace. And um, do you have too much on your plate? I mean, do, do, do one of these become non-core? Um, I mean, the, again, every everything is always open for discussion. Um, we feel like we've got a great team with a competitive advantage in Bolivia. And so we certainly have a lot of good work that we'd love to be able to put our heads down and get done. Uh, and then maybe at some point uh, down the road, we can you know, pause and take a breath and, and take stock of where we're at. But um, yeah, certainly all options are always on the table. But for the time being, we feel like you know, we've, we've got um, a healthy amount of work in front of us. Um, and so we're going to continue to push forward uh, internally in the current structure. Great. And um, looking at your shareholder structure, you, you've got a, kind of a, a slide in your a capital structure slide in your presentation. I, I, I see that um, um, uh, Pan American Silver is kind of just under ten percent, and you've got um, uh, Silver Corp at twenty eight percent. You know, two uh, industry partners with a combined thirty seven, thirty eight percent of the company. Does that um, it, it, you're coming into the company with very fresh eyes? You must have seen uh, companies which are kind of um, constrained by the strategic uh relationships that it's got within itself is that a concern for you you know how, do, how does that relationship work across the shareholder register yeah I, I mean i certainly don't see it as a concern at all i actually see it as a, a point of strength for the company we've got you know two very sophisticated industry partners as our major shareholders and so when you think about um you know their interests they They've got fiduciary uh, responsibilities to their own shareholders, so they they really, with that investment position, are going to be you know, doing what makes the most sense as as rational investors in the company. And so, yeah, I think as far as strategy goes, it, tension between I, I just think it, um, if anything, it just it gives us more um, intellectual horsepower as a company. You know, certainly having you know uh, Dr. Rui Feng as our founder and, and a board member and, and Pan American, you know, bringing their uh, VP technical operations, Martin LaForn, uh, he's on our board. So, and we think it it's a real strategic asset for the company. And they've also been, you know, uh, when we, we talk about needing to raise money, having in particular Silver Corp being a, a cornerstone, you know, potential lead, lead order type uh, investor and in any financing that we do certainly is uh, something that it, we're very proud of. And, um, you know, again, getting out there and, and telling the story from my from my new seat here, it's certainly my objective to continue broadening the uh, outreach, not just to investors, but to corporates also, given that our you know assets are still uh, strategically important. Um, but surely the interests of the shareholders are not aligned um, in the sense that the corporates uh, have got to cover a long-term interest in in um, it, it perhaps it's kind of a, a takeover target and they'd like to see the value lower, whereas your non-strategic interests would like to see the valuation higher. Do, is, isn't there a conflict in that? Um, I suppose you could frame it that way. Um, but at the end of the day, like if you look at, say, Silver Corp's uh, position in New Pacific Metals, it's like a substantial portion of their market cap. So you know, there's certainly you're not going to be incentivized to you know, do anything to impair that valuation because it really has a direct drive impact on their bottom line. So I don't see it you know, from that perspective having an impact. But you know, regardless, um, 
the best thing we can do is just continue to uh, generate interest you know, in, in other names and, and, um, and bring other folks and eyeballs you know, to look at the name. Because at the end of the day, if, if a third party, let's say there's another party that comes in and, and puts an offer on the table, you know, then um, you know, they ultimately, you establish a new market price and, um, and it really takes care of everyone. I mean, so I, I don't, I don't see, um, yeah, I certainly don't, don't see it as a, a particular you know issue as long as we can continue to drive the value and have it be you know broadcasted and well known in the industry you know certainly uh, other parties out there you know given how strategically important these assets are they they won't let them go on the cheap to to anybody so you know um yeah and are, are you getting um inbound on the on the basis on the back of um the uh the kind of the technical advancements uh that you've 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 done over the last few years. I mean, I know you've only been um, there for three months, but uh, what's your sense of kind of the industry awareness of what you've been achieving? Yeah, I think um, I think it's it's been really encouraging. I would say, and um, industry awareness. I think folks are well aware of of Silver Sand, but getting out and telling the Karangas story—that's what it's really surprised me—is how few people have never heard of Karangas and you know, aren't aware that we're putting these you know five hundred plus meter uh, runs of 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 over a gram gold, you know, at depth and these, you know, the extensive silver mineralization that we've discussed, uh, discovered near surface. So, you know, that to me, I think as we continue to tell that story and put out the resource and then the PEA, I think it'll be become impossible to ignore. And then, you know, the, the interest, not only from investors, but from corporates, I think will just continue to grow from, from where it is already. Good. And, um, is your role principally, uh, market facing, um, do, do you get down to Bolivia much? Yeah, that's um, market facing is certainly a key aspect of it. Given my background as an institutional investor, portfolio manager, uh, corporate development, again engaging with uh, the corporates out there, and then um, yeah, certainly you know supporting Rui uh, in strategic initiatives in the company, whether it's the the technical studies, uh, the permitting efforts. Um, yes, that's that's all falls within the scope of my responsibility and and i'm actually uh on saturday heading back down to bolivia uh for two weeks going to be there uh you know working with our, our local team and and you know given that this is a, a critical uh moment for us you know and some of the um the permitting and community relations stuff uh at at silver sand so you know, really rolling up my sleeves and and lending everything i can to that effort is certainly an important part of my job in addition to just the capital markets and uh, you know, corporate development sides of my role. Well, Andrew, um, good luck in Bolivia. Very nice meeting you, and I uh, look forward to catching up with you as the as the news flow progresses through the year. Thanks, Marilyn. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate all your your insightful questions.